I pulled the knife. I said, now disrespect me today. <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> he was scared oh my to gosh. death. He sat down. I said, now shut up. You, Richard Thomas, come here and sit down. Rich, I, I started to climb over a chair. He ran to sit down, right? Now, I was scared to death. I took the knife and I stabbed it into the stage and went, Ding! I said, now you guys think you know something about this guy. And I went into, the, I went into a monologue and I was on another planet because it was like, I'm either getting this job or I'm going to jail. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Allen Schechter, and welcome to Writer's Room Pros, a podcast of conversations with TV and film professionals where we talk about not just their work, but their approach to finding, developing, and ultimately telling stories for a living. On this episode, we welcome actor and acting coach Richard Lawson. Richard shares with us the lengths he's gone to to land jobs, including flying overseas and tempting jail time, the importance of all roles, major and minor, and how writers can work in better collaboration with actors. And now, Richard Lawson. So, Richard, tell me about the time you pulled a knife on John Boy. I pulled a knife on John Boy. Ha ha. Um, yeah, that I, actually. You didn't think I knew that story, did you? No, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> um, actually, that wasn't too far from here. It was at the, at the time, it was called the Westwood Playhouse. Um, it's now called the Geffen Theater. Oh, okay. And we were doing um, a play uh, called Streamers. And um, uh, John Boy, Richard Thomas, uh, uh, Ralph Davison, um, uh, Charlie Durning, and Ralph Meeker, and an uh, actor named Herb Jefferson mm -hmm. uh, were doing that production. And it was a pretty amazing production. Milton Katsalas directed it. Uh, we ran from uh, December to... Uh, almost May. And during those few months, um, well, the character pulls a knife on John Boy, was one of them. Um, and I, the character kills, Carlisle kills two people. He stabs John Boy and he stabs Charlie Durning. And um, it, it was so effective as a, a dynamic in a play that over the course of those months, 14 people were carried out on stretchers. Oh, my gosh. From passing out or from having a heart attack. All men. Interesting. All men. Um, the play was such a an intense play that the first act was very funny, but wasn't funny ha-ha. It was tension-filled humor. And, and then the second act, when the door slammed, man, you know, it was just a, a great way of capturing people um, in a real intense drama. And it was like, a, it was an incredible um, experience. And it kind of was what launched my career. Yeah. You know. Well, I know, I actually know the play well. I directed it as a senior project in college. Really? That's part of my senior college. Because I, I started my, I was in the film program at SUNY Purchase. And um, I had to do a senior film uh -huh. as my uh, senior project, but I started my senior film as a sophomore. Right. So it was basically finished by the end of my junior year. And everybody's like, well, what are you going to do for your senior project? You finished your senior film already. It's like, how wow. about I direct a play? So I chose Streamers because I saw the original production, the you Joseph did, Pratt where? production at uh, the Mitzi Gaynor Theater in, yeah. 
in, the Lincoln in Center? Yeah. In Lincoln Center. In so you saw, so I saw Peter Dorian Evan. Harewood. I saw Dorian Harewood. Yeah. He was amazing. He was amazing. Yeah. So the, yeah, so the character Carla. But my, my understanding, though, and I'm, I, not to steal your, your story from you, was that you auditioned for that, the role of Carlisle twice. Yes. And the first time you auditioned, they cut you off after like 30 seconds. You know the story. I How'd know you the get story. This? That's amazing. Thank you. And, um, and then, then you came back, it was like a, a year later or something to audition yeah. the second time? No, it wasn't a year later. It was maybe four months later. Four months later. Yeah. I, I asked an actor to come and audition with me because I didn't want a reader. Uh -huh. And I auditioned and, um, uh, um, and the, the, uh, the producer, maybe about 30 seconds in a minute in said, thank you. Thank you. That's, That's on the first audition. That was the first audition. That was very good. Um, so Billy Freakin was supposed to direct it. Uh, Richard Thomas was the, was one of the actors cast and Peter Falk was the other actor. Peter Falk? Peter Falk was playing the sergeant. Wow. Sergeant Rooney, I believe Rooney, it was. Yeah. Um, and so um, time went on, um, and all of us. And then after a while, uh, Billy Freakin dropped out, and Peter Falk dropped out. And so, you know, and so it was like, wow. And so I was just waiting. And then the next thing I heard, Milton Kitsellis is now directing it, and I said, oh man. He's my acting teacher. Who's going to, I don't have a shot now, right? And I was very disappointed. Now, the interesting thing was, is that, <laughs> this is crazy. Um, uh, I was, I, I put that scene up in class a couple of times. With Milton. With Milton, before he had it. And I said to him at the end of one, um, uh, the second time I put it up, I said, Milton, I have an idea. This is what I'm going to do. Right now, they're looking for name actors. And Richard, is, Richard Lawson is nobody. So I'm going to go in, and I'm going to take a 357 Magnum, and I'm going to fire it into the ceiling. <laughs> Plaster is going to fall. That will scare the shit out of them, and I'll have their attention. You got my attention just telling the story. <laughs> but th this was... This made my entire career. But you didn't pull the gun. No, this I didn't even get the audition. It was just before the audition. He said to me, let me think about it. He taught another scene. And at the end of the scene, he said, come here. And he put both of his hands on my shoulder. And he looked me in the eye intently. And he said, if that's what you see, do it. Do it. Jeez. He infused me with a sense of confidence, the fact that I wasn't crazy, and follow your vision. Well, in his mind, I think he really understood that I would never take it that far. Okay? So. Well, he, he knew you well. You were his student for... A while now. Well, I've been as I was a student for since 1977. But when he got the job, I understood that this was still an uphill battle for me, and I already told him what I was going to do, so what that wasn't going to work. But when I got the audition the second time, 
I walked in, and just before I walked in, Kenny Holiday, who had done it after Dorian in New York, walked out and he looked at me and he said, good luck. <laughs> and that fired me up. So, so the door opens, the producer comes to the door, and I said, he said, hey, Richard, good to see you. I said, man, the last time I was here, you stopped me. You stopped me. I was disrespectful. You stopped me. He said, no, I didn't mean any respect. I said it was disrespectful. I pulled the knife. I said, now disrespect me today. <laughs> Sit down. He was scared oh to gosh. death. He sat down. I said, now shut up. You, Richard Thomas, come here and sit down. Rich, I, I started to climb over a chair. He ran to sit down, right? Now, I was scared to death. I took the knife and I stabbed it into the stage and went, Ooh. I said, now you guys think you know something about this guy. And I went into, the, I went into a monologue and I was on another planet because it was like, I'm either getting this job or I'm going to jail. I killed it. I had their attention. I, at the end, end, I took the knife out, I folded it up, and I said, I said, I want to thank you guys for having the patience to sit through that. I just needed to show you who this guy was. Thank you very much. And I walked out. They got up and they said, call the police, call the police. Uh, uh, um, Milton said, but look, wait, wait, wait. Let me just ask you guys something. Was that the character? And they stopped and they said, that was the character, but that was crazy. But was that the character? Yes, that was the character. And I got the job. That's incredible. <laughs> I didn't know about the call the police part. <laughs> oh, it was that close. It was, I was going to get the job or go to jail. Right. Yeah. Well, you know what I love about this story? And this is why I wanted to ask about it is because of there's this um and I, I just know this from knowing you for how long i know you and um and the various stories that you've told and people have told about you you have this level of commitment hmm. to the craft hmm. that's not that's beyond academic hmm. it's it's a it's a desire to um transcend expectations hmm. And, you know, it's like if you look at, like, the bell curve of mm -hmm. what people are willing to do mm. um, to get a job. Mm. Most people are down here where yeah. it's safe. Yeah. And there's some people who are up here. Yeah. Right? So that story is about being up here. It's about, yeah. Yeah, right? There's another story I know. Um, not that, you know, it's like, Richard, Richard Lawson, this <laughs> is your life. Um, you know, where uh, you, uh, you flew to London. Uh -huh. <laughs> who have you been know, talking to, man? I know a guy who knows a guy. Okay. Oh my god! Okay. That's so, yeah. Okay, so so you flew to London yes. to meet with Milos Forman, yes. who did not know that you were planning to ambush him. No. <laughs> so he came to California for uh, ragtime. Ragtime, right? That was. And uh, I knew about that book because a friend of mine used to work for um, Mike Frankovich. And um, Milton did a, a, a film with Mike Frankovich called Report to the Commissioner. And then um, um, another of his films. And so my friend worked for Mike French. And he told me about this book that Mike was looking at. I read the book and it was like, oh, man, I got to do this part. 
And so Milos came to California and he wouldn't see me. Not so, a big enough name or? Just, he didn't, he saw my picture and he didn't think that I was right casting for it, right? right. So um, I went and played basketball with my friend Mike Greenberg, who you might know. He did MacGyver and a bunch of other things. Um, uh, anyway, I said, Mike said, did you, so did you see Mr. Foreman? I said, no, he wouldn't see me. I said, he went to London to scout locations. Maybe I can see him when he comes back. He said, man, I would go to London. You, you guys hold my basketball because it just went, <laughs> it just resonated. Of course. I went home, called um, my agent, uh, ICM. They said, well, he's represented in ICM in New York. I called New York, called an agent in New York who said, um, well, I don't represent Mr. Foreman, but I help the guy who does. Um, I said, well, where is he staying in New York? And she said, why? I said, I'm just curious. Look, I don't know what you have in mind, but I, I don't know. He stays at one of three or four hotels, the Inn on the Park, and this and that and the other. I said, okay, thank you. Booked my flight to Gadwick. Flew to Gadwick. Um, got to um, a, a station that had hotels, hotels and stuff. Mm -hmm. I went there and said, "Can I'd like to get a reservation um, for a hotel. And Oh, before that, I, I just sort of meditated on which one of these hotels. And I came up with Inn on the Park. I said, I want a reservation for Inn on the Park. And the girl looked and said, um, oh, we just sold our, gave the last room away. I said, are you sure? She says, yes, I'm sure. I said, can I speak to your manager? Sir, I'm telling you, this, we don't have any more rooms. May I speak to your manager? Went in the back, got the manager. I pulled the $200 one or two $100 bills out, put it in his palm and said, I need a room at Inn on the Park. Got me a room at Inn on the Park. I took the train to London, got to the hotel. I said, can you tell me if Mr. Foreman is still registered here? Well, yes, he is. Huh. Perfect. So I went to my room, dropped my clothes, changed my clothes, took a shower, walked the lobby, walked the hallways, went to the restaurant, walked the lobby, walked the hallway, went to the restaurant. I did this for about four hours. Finally, I was sleepy. I went to, um, went to bed and something woke me up a little while later because I knew he was in his room. I called his room. Mr. Foreman, he, he answered the phone. Um, hello? I said, Mr. Foreman, my name is Richard Lawson. I am Cole House Walker. I just want five minutes of your time. I want you to see me. I want to talk to you just for five minutes. He says, I'm sorry, old boy. I have to go to a party. When you get back to the United States, give your picture to Mary Goldberg. Goodbye. Mm. So at first it was a loss, a loss. The next morning I realized, man, you had the balls to fly to London, you have the balls to follow this through, spend a week, go to the theater, have fun, and then go home. It was a win. And I did that. I went and saw The Dresser, the premiere. I went to, you know, Windsor Castle. I went home. Um, I was, one day, about a week, two weeks later, my manager kept trying to call me. 
and, um, and I'd missed all of his calls. Um, and finally, long story short, Mr. Foreman reached out because he wanted to see me. He had no idea that I was the guy in London. Right, because you never met face to face. Never met face to face. I flew to New York, um, auditioned for him at the Essex House, uh, right, looking overlooking the park. He loved what I did. He wanted me to stay and, uh, and wait for a week. Um, I auditioned um, for him the next week. Then I came back for a screen test, and it was down between me and, and, and Howard Rollins. And Howard got the part. Mm. But when I saw the film, I said, Howard should have gotten that part, because that's not how I saw that character. Right. But again, it was one of those moments where you follow your dream, man. And uh, it, it added to my life, exponentially so. Right. Because, you know, there's nothing that I won't. I will leave no stone unturned. Right. It's, it's, I mean, I, not to you know, say, oh, you know, I too have, but yeah, I, I did, I did a very similar thing where I had, uh, I quit my, um, I quit my job as I was doing industrial videos and I was like, okay, you know, cause there was the, um, there's, uh, this principal that, the the guy I worked for who I was not crazy about, but he had some interesting insights about business. And one of his principles was, um, um, that if you do something part-time, you get part-time results. Right. And if you do something full-time. So I said, well, I want to be, and I, so I was a part-time writer because yeah. I would work all day and then go home and, you know, and then, you know, whatever, you know, do four or five hours of writing at night. I was like, well, that's, I was getting part-time results. I want to get full-time results. Right. So I quit my job, you know, and said, okay, I'm going to spend five months becoming um, a full-time writer. Right. And in the first month, I, like I gave notice and I had to like, I had one month, I think, before I, I, the, uh, he wanted one month notice so I could train my replacement. Right. So in that one month, I wrote a script. I'm going, mm. oh, this is going to be great. I, I bang out a script a month. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> you know, I, got, I, I calculated how much money I had in the bank. I had like mm. six, you know, no, I had like 11 grand in the bank. I can, I can live for six months. This is back in the days where, right. you know, right. a single, you know, 28 year old or whatever right. could live for six months on 11 grand. Right. So, okay, so I'm going to do 11, you know, uh, you know, six months. I'm going to have seven scripts by the time I'm done with all. Right. So, of course, I didn't write one word uh, in that period of time. <laughs> because I was, I was beginning to get involved with like spirituality and stuff uh, like that. So I oh, spent all that time nice. like, you know, learning and, you know, about, you know, Judaism and all that stuff. Anyway, right. so now I'm down. I'm, I have one month left. And um, I, uh, my grandmother had always threatened to take me on like a vacation, you know, like a cruise or something. Right. But she was now too old to travel. So she said, you know, I'm going to give you some money. You know, spend, take, take a, this last month, go travel, do whatever you want. Right. You know, so I said, okay, well, I have, I had friends in, um, I had friends in England, friends in Sweden, and I'd never been to Israel. So I said, okay, I'll go to Israel for two weeks. So a week in England, a week in Sweden, and then two weeks in Israel, come back home and find another job. Mm. So I do my week in England. It's great. I had a great time. Um, I get to Sweden, and literally I'm walking through into the, the apartment door. I mean, I've given my agent you know, um, my itinerary. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I'm walking through the apartment door in Sweden, and the people I'm staying with, you know, the phone rings and they're like, y'all. Okay, hold on one second. It's like, it's for you. I'm like, it's your agent. I'm like, it's like the most Hollywood thing. Right, right, you know? And I'm nobody. Like, I, I don't have a credit. I'm not in the Writers Guild, nothing. You know? right, but I right. had this great, it's your agent phone call. So my agent says, okay, there's an open writing assignment that you're perfect for. Mm. Uh, it's uh, for the sequel to Bloodsport. Oh. <laughs> you know? So, you know, not 
not the Citizen Kane of action adventure movies, but whatever. <laughs> so a it's, job. A, it's a job, right? Exactly. Your first it, job. It's the first job, guild mm -hmm. thing. I go, oh, I'm literally on day one of my second week of a four week thing. Will this job be waiting for me, you know, in three weeks? Oh. And she said, no. I said, okay, tell them I'll be there in three days. So I literally, I had $1,500 left at this point. I took right. that $1,500 and spent it on an airline ticket one right. way. Right. I'd have abandoned my other, all my other tickets one way to go back from Sweden to LA to, you know, meet the producer for this job. And, um, and that was it. It was like, that was the end of my money. Right. So I, I, I come back and I sit down with the guy and you know, I'm from Brooklyn. He was from New Jersey and you know, his accent is thicker than mine. Mm -hmm. And, but now when I'm with a, you probably have, he wouldn't say that necessarily. <laughs> be, what accent? <laughs> <laughs> what accent you have? You're the, You're one, the one with, with the accent. accent. Right. So, so, you know, so he's talking to me like this. I, and now it's bringing up my accent because mm -hmm. my ear picked up on it. Now I'm talking to him like that. We're getting along great. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, and, um, you know, and he's telling me, well, you know, I really enjoyed meeting you, but you know, look, I'm still talking to other writers. I'm going, no, 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 there are no other writers. And this happened like two or three times in the meeting. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, oh, there's some interesting idea. Yeah, I'm meeting with some other writers. I get, no, 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 there are no other writers. Mm. And, um, and I got the job, nice. you know, and uh, that was like one of like two or three things I, I did with that same producer, a guy named Mark DeSalle. Mm. And, um, but it was that same idea. It was that, uh, you know, if, if I didn't get the job, I didn't want it to be because I didn't commit to trying right. to get the job. People talk about plan A and plan B. Because if you have something you can afford that you can't afford to lose, it's going to stop you every time. But if you're committed to whatever it is, and there's nothing that you can't afford to lose, then you're all in. And that means that you are following your purpose. This show is brought to you by Showrunner Industries, makers of Writers Room Pro. For more about the app and this show, make sure to check us out at writersroompro.com and follow us on Instagram at writersroompro. Now, back to the show. Part of my vision about managing one's career is I put a camera in people's hands and I have them become a filmmaker. Not to become the next, you know, um, uh, Spike Lee or Quentin Tarantino, but to really understand the business you have to understand it from the inside so that if you understand storytelling, because acting is storytelling. So an actor needs to understand storytelling from editing, from writing, from, from understanding the structure of what this character's responsibility is in this film. What's your job? Are you the protagonist? Are you the antagonist? Are you the stakes character? Are you the uh, deflector? I talk about John Goodman in one of the questions that you asked me. John Goodman is the greatest believer of all. Every character he plays, or the majority of them, right. are believers. Right. And so he's like fighting and leading the cause to uh -huh. help this person, like in with... Uh, Big Lebowski. That, that and, and the flight with Denzel. Oh, yeah. You know, he was the believer in right. that. And he advocated no one advocates stronger than him. So these roles, you know, he plays, he just fills that believer up with so much that you're carried along in his belief. And so... It's such an interesting observation. I'm thinking also uh, Argo. Yeah. 
He yeah. gets cast as that because he's great at that. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Some people are great at the playing certain parts. And so therefore, actors need to know what their job is. They need to know in terms of writing. You know, as you know, one of my classes, because we called you to come in and, and to, you know, to, to advise us on the road that we were going down with this script, it is all based upon your structure and your teaching. And the whole year was looking and feeding it through contour and asking those questions and, I mean, every part of it. And so, therefore, when we're, we're teaching acting through your writing techniques, and it helps tremendously because you're storytellers. So what's your responsibility in the story? What's the story about? You know, um, uh, and with that additional clarity, they become better actors. The famous story about um, um, Streetcar Named Desire, where I, I can't remember the name of the actor, but at the very end of the play, uh, two guys come in in white coats to cart Blanche off mm -hmm. to the asylum, mm -hmm. right? And um, so you gotta remember, these guys show up, the play is three hours long, right? right? Uh, th these actors, I think only, I don't even know if one of them has a line, I don't know if they, either of them have a line or not, but um, anyway, they, they, they're, showing, they're sitting backstage for three hours in their white coats, mm -hmm. waiting to come on in the last 30 seconds or so yeah. you know, of the play. And the story is told, I don't know if it's apocryphal, of the one of the guys who's cast as the orderly mm -hmm. um, is asked by his mother um, about the play. He's, he's like, hey, mom, I, I, I've been cast in a Broadway play. And she goes, oh, that's great. What's, what's your part? You know, what's the play about? And he goes, oh, it's, a, it's about these guys who take a woman to an insane asylum, <laughs> right? And, you know, so that, and that's all I know about this story, but I would like to believe that the guy actually did know what the play was about, but in his mind, it's the old, there are no small parts, only small actors. Exactly. In his mind, he's the star of his story. Oh, listen, um, I'm always reminded that Beatrice Strait was in Network, mm -hmm. and she might have been on screen three minutes and she won the academy award as the wife of um the the ceo or the network head oh ned who, Beatty. who not ned Beatty, no. um um who was had the affair with uh um oh is that william holden uh i think it might have been william holden okay. uh but she was the she was the uh wife who was cheated on and she just had that one scene and she won the Academy Award. So there, there are no small parts. You know, I know I asked you um, when we were prepping for all this about uh, Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. And there's the, the pub scene. So uh, just the setup for, and, and people could search for this on YouTube. It's a yeah. 14 or 15 minute scene. Right. Brilliant directing, brilliant acting. And I'm, and obviously it's Tarantino. So the writing is, is also brilliant. We use that word a lot around here. Brilliant. That's a brilliant outfit, by the way. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to bring some color and you light. You certainly to... did. Um, but... And by the way, this is my 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 daughter's uh, creation. This is Ivy Park. I mean, maybe I shouldn't. No, that's fine. Ivy Park. Go on, get it. It's, um, Adidas. That's right. We're looking for sponsors for the podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, but the uh, <laughs> I forgot what I was talking. Oh, and glorious bastards. But the the thing. 
it, it's actually kind of interesting because I said this to you before when the camera started rolling that um, I look at that scene, the pub scene, um, mm -hmm. as a as a magic trick, mm -hmm. and you looked at me like really. That's like I, I wouldn't even know how to write that scene. You're like really, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's it's fascinating to me that 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 I find it so overwhelming to try to imagine how you got all that on camera. So like the things are an example that in that scene, right? So the setup is, you know, is um, Brad Pitt and Michael, uh, well, no, Brad Pitt's actually not in that scene. He sent mm -hmm. these people in, but it's Michael Fassbinder and uh, yeah, Till Schweiger. And I forget the other guy who's with them, but yeah, uh, he's down there. Too. And um, yeah, and um, um, Von Hammerschmark, the, mm -hmm. uh, the German actress. Mm -hmm. And it's and the scene is until the very end is all in German, mm -hmm. um, and the there's a group of drunk German soldiers at one table, mm -hmm. like enlisted soldiers mm -hmm. or not non officers, and they're all disguised as officers meeting with uh, mm -hmm. Bridget von Hamischmark, and um, and uh, one of the drunk soldiers comes over, and I I think it's because he's like he recognizes Bridget von Hamischmark, who's like you know uh, he recognizes Fraulein. Yeah, the Fraulein, right? Mm -hmm. And you know and. Um, and he's so drunk, he doesn't realize what's going. You know that he's he's actually it's an infraction. He's like mm -hmm. sitting at an or came to an officer's table, mm -hmm. and Fassbinder needs to get rid of him mm -hmm. and like loses his temper and is mm -hmm. yelling at him. But the thing that was fascinating to me is that this drunk soldier is just like staring mm -hmm. at Fassbinder, and you're thinking that he's so drunk he's he's being he's being um you know like drawn and quartered by this German officer, you know mm -hmm. by Fassbinder. But what he's really thinking is, what's with this accent? Right, exactly. Right. So it, it was a, so like mm -hmm. I'm trying to think like as a writer, mm -hmm. like I would be afraid to put all that you know Max the no Max is I guess the kid who's one I forget the the, the sergeant's name he's he's like a new dad they're all mm -hmm. there celebrating because he's mm -hmm. a, he's a new father, and um, like you know the, the Ger German soldiers listening intently we think he's doing this but you know, we we think he's reacting to being yelled at, but he's actually pondering the source of mm -hmm. of this accent. I would be afraid to put that in the script as a writer because I would think that I'm somehow steering the actor too specifically, yet, it, yet that's what it's about. Mm -hmm. um, or, I mean, I can imagine that also having been played um, that he's sitting there and, and it's like, you know, German soldier is, you know, is um, a, a initially upset you mm -hmm. know, that being yelled at. Um, but somehow through his drunken haze, he realizes there's something a little bit off mm -hmm. about. So maybe I would write that. Mm -hmm. I, I think that detail is important. Um, and so then the question becomes um, whether that can be acted without highlights, without highlighting it, mm -hmm. um, and, um, and whether the, the actor can deliver the intention because that moment sets up the whole rest of the scene. And it is the first uh, thing to challenge the believability of their uh, their cover, German uniforms, German accents, and um, and with the appearance of celebration, when it's really just a moment of planning for the assassination of Hitler 
the following day, I believe. Um, and so that scene has a series of chapter changes, as I will call them. Mm -hmm. um, writers refer to them as beats, and no one has ever been able to explain to me <laughs> what a beat is or what what's the substance of a beat. Is it a beat where you just take a moment and then move to something else? Or is it a chapter change that is a series of knit one, purl two, mm -hmm. in terms of this gradient of tension building to climax. And so therefore, that moment is key because it sets up a series of other moments of tension notching moments that the scene gets more and more dangerous, where our little group is in more and more peril. And so the way that that uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino wrote it brilliantly, uh, the uh, he he graduated the sense of tension to the point to where when it was at its max, now we're at a now we're at a stalemate here. Mm -hmm. The next move, the game blows up. Right. So who's going to make the next move? And then the character who is the greatest, you know care trigger because of, again, his past and all the things he suffered along the way takes it to the next level in a matter of That's seconds. That's the major in the other room. No, no. The major in the other room graduated it uh, before that. And I uh -huh. jumped past him, but but because he's part of the gradient of change, even to the challenge when when Fassbender says, look, we're, you know, you are intruding. Yeah, you know, all due respect, right. oh. you're intruding. I remember and so watching that scene and, and going, "Oh my God, this yeah. guy's a psycho! What's he gonna do?" Yeah, see, and that's, you know, there's a series of "oh shit," right moments. There's probably about seven or eight of them where we say, "Oh shit!" Just in that one 15 minute. Sequence. One in that 15 minute scene, it kept graduating right. stakes kept getting higher and higher and higher right. until we're at a point where what's going to happen right and so the way it's played and the way that he dealt with you know about being the scotch and so what are we going to do what, what are you going to do what are we going to do and he says well you know since we seem to be on that road, and since this seems to be the little final moments of my life, I might as well enjoy this good 17-year-old scotch. He right. says, there's nothing good, you know, nothing right. better. Right. Now what? And then the guy pulls the trigger, and then it explodes. It explodes. In, a, in a matter of, it took 15 minutes to get there, and it took 20 seconds for everybody to die. Right. Which was a brilliant series of chapter changes. Mm -hmm. And these actors fulfilling their assignments in terms of their 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 um, their uh, what's the word I'm looking for their um, um, oh God I can't think of the word um, archetypes mm -hmm. if we look at the roles that they're filling um, so it was it was brilliantly written and brilliantly directed. And the thing that makes that such a powerful scene is that the one thing I think Quentin Tarantino has is the sense of patience. You know, good music has space 
so you can hear all the instrumentation. When it gets so cluttered, it's kind of like rock music, you know what I mean, where you can't hear the parts. But in, in great music, there's space. And he directed a sense of space so that, so that the shoe would fall and everybody would sit and say, well, what do we do now? And it would sit there before anything happened, each time, each gradient. And so he directed it brilliantly, he wrote it brilliantly, and he allowed the scene to breathe, which created the tension. Yeah, it's, it's like something dawned on me as you were speaking about it, that that scene, if that scene began the, like was earlier mm -hmm. in the story, it wouldn't play. Because we went, we didn't. What what made that so tense is we understood the Till Schweiger character was recruited by the bastards because he loves killing Nazis, <laughs> right? Right. So now here's like the second worst Nazi in the entire story. I guess maybe Hitler's Nazi number one, the worst right. Nazi. You know, then you had uh, you know Chris Waltz's, you know, you know Captain Hans. Uh, uh, blinking on the name, but um, so he was the second the worst. So and then this major is the third worst Nazi, right? Right. Um, and so we we needed to know just how bad this this major is, like how what a psycho he is. What we a need, psycho! We need to know uh, that Till Schweiger's character loves to kill Nazis. So now we're right. putting the third worst Nazi we've ever seen in with a guy who loves killing Nazis, right? And then you got Michael Fassbinder, who's you know, who is this sophisticated, very polished, very self-assured, you know, character. But if we didn't know, if we hadn't seen those prior scenes, to you, set could that the, up. The, you, you could have the exact same scene and, and it wouldn't have anywhere near the impact. Hi, this is Stephen Kane. If you're listening, come get me, help me, get me out of this mess. I don't know why I volunteered for this, but I am a writer and a producer in television, and that's why they asked me to come join them for the Writer's Room Pros podcast, and that's what you're listening to. How do you give enough to the actor as a writer without just being too explicit? Well, it's, you know, I think um, depends on what genre mm -hmm. you're in. Oh, that's interesting. You know, the genre, if you were in, um, in soap operas, it has to be explicit. In the script? In the script. Okay. You know, because... You're not looking for actors who have world of experience in terms of character development. Most of these people are new, so you have to almost write it explicitly. Mm -hmm. In television, um, you know, um, you have to stay true to whatever this formula that you've come up with that makes this show work. And every show is so different, even in terms of the acting. You know, you like for instance, you you wrote Stitchers, which is a which was a, a procedural. It was filled with technical information and jargon. Not everybody can handle that. People with thick tongues can't talk that fast. <laughs> and so they can't handle the jargon. It has to move at a certain rate. And you have to deliver the information and move it forward. But in film, it's different, right? Um, and so, you know, if you look at Scorsese, Scorsese winds up using the same people. So therefore, as he writes, he can write things with a lot more room. Mm -hmm. So he gives the actor, so he gives the actor the creative possibility 
of having imagination and bringing what they bring to it. So all of those, you know, those uh, mafia type shows, he knew what he was buying and what he was creating with who he cast. And so you create a you create a situation or a circumstance or whatever, and you put these actors in there, and then you can go and give them a note or two, and they will fill that balloon to its capacity. So a lot of it has to do with, if it's just a script that you're trying to get sold, it's one thing. If it's working and you've created kind of a repertory of actors that you know well and hire and use again and again, then you're right, perhaps a little bit, a little bit more breadth and more room for them to be creative in it. So it depends, I think, on, you know, the starting point in terms of what you're creating, why you're creating it, and who you're creating it for as to the writing. Right. Yeah. Good. Really interesting. Um, have you seen... Um like in, in your experience or in your memory, do you have like, I guess we'll go both ways, like the a scene that was um, like really poorly written that was completely, I don't want to say, say, like every scene is saved by good acting or is enhanced by good acting, but it's something that was poorly, poorly written that the actors found material in there that even the writer didn't know was in there and it just elevated the material? Well, you know, experienced actors know how to ask the next question. Mm -hmm. So in terms of asking the next question, so that when I read something, and um, so the writer writes, you know, um, John Davis is drunk. Um, and that's all it says, right? And the drunk is a is a quality that is weaves in and out throughout the film right so the next question is well is he an alcoholic uh, why is he an alcoholic what kind of drunk is he what does he drink why does he drink uh, what's the nature of his ruin um, so that that sense of alcohol component becomes very clear and specific and then has history to it. Mm. So what, what has to be filled in is the history. And the history uh, can be specific history, uh, especially if you're writing from your own experience, um, or it can be a history or must be some kind of history that the actor creates because they have a concept about this character. And so at the end of the day, it's always about asking the next question so that the material can be filled in and have this history to it and then has this whole depth. I created something called the character chart. I don't know if I've ever showed it to you. I don't think so. So the character chart is, um, you know, first of all, I'm an actor, but I really am a behavioral anthropologist. That's mm -hmm. what I am. So anthropology is the study of the, of the uh, social, behavioral, cultural, emotional aspect of man. And so in that study of this character, John Davies, I'm looking at 
those aspects, cultural, behavioral, social, emotional aspect of John Davis, right? And so as I look at a script and if and, and I set up a I set up a chart the same way that you look at the first AD's board, you know, with all yeah. those details. Yeah. That's at the top of my chart because those things are important. When you're working, who you're working with, you know, the 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 day you're working. And so that I take all of the scenes, extract all of the scenes out of the script on John Davies. The first scene might be scene three. The second scene he's in might be scene seven. The third scene might be scene 14. I'd say extract all of that and I put all those details in just for John Davies. I then look at each of those scenes on the downline side and then at the bottom of the chart is the emotional through lines. So he has rage. He loves his wife, but he's a philanderer. He he has issues with his son. He's a jealous person. Um, he's driven by his past. All these details that weave in and out so that rage may show up in scenes four and five, 14, 17, 22, 34. Mm -hmm. So all those scenes of rage, all each one of those scenes, I clock when they happen. And so that I understand at the end of the day, Every single moment of this character's journey, emotionally, psychologically, and otherwise, through the entire script. And so before we start shooting, I have a very clear idea right. of who this guy is and how to play it. And even in terms of the degree, so that so that in the first in 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 act one or in the in the in the orphan stage, it is like a one or a two or a three of rage in the war in the uh, in the uh, um, wanderer stage, it goes to a seven. Mm -hmm. In the warrior stage, it goes to a nine to the climax when it's a ten, and then the martyr stage, so that I understand what that emotion and what it is, and so that no matter what script I get. I'm able to ask the next question and I can fill in all those details so that my chart on John Davis is very, very clear. Now, with that chart, I can go to the director and we can create a language that we both understand because you understand me and I understand you because you're looking at what I'm creating down to wardrobe, hair, all of that has a life in every scene. Right. And I'm clear about that. So that whatever script, I don't care what kind of script, I fill it in with this life. This is like the first time that I've heard anybody articulate the idea, which I love, because you know, I'm like a big structuralist, right? I'm, uh, that's what I love about you. Yeah. And that's- and It's as, not my personality, it, just that fact that I'm into structure. Well, <laughs> well I'd have to ask my, your daughter what kind my, of structure you It hurts my feelings a bit, I'll be honest with you. But, but what I love, but what you're saying is that because, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, I mean, I've been writing professionally for 30 years, that this is legit, you know, at, you know, 1139, you know, in the, in the morning on, on today's date is the first time that I'm, I'm, I'm really appreciating the idea that, that, that a prepared actor is a co-writer. And I never, you know, it, it's easy. Uh, please don't pull out the knife and stick it in the table like you did with John Boy. But 
The because sometimes sometimes it's easy to think when <laughs> when you're when you're uh, when you're that you can think of the actor as an obstacle. I'm, I'm just being honest, right? Yeah. That, that you're, you're there and you're going, I've got this intent in mind and the actor's not delivering it. And now I can't, I'm, I'm the writer. I can't go talk to the actor. It's up to the director. And I got to go talk to the director. And you know, it's like, it's this, it's this whole thing. And, you know, and it's, it's a complete disservice. You know, I'm like, I'm, yeah. you know, you know, I'm a complete disservice uh, to, to a prepared actor. Now I've also, have worked with unprepared actors who just show up and it's like, you know, okay, let's go. You know, like yeah. they don't want to run lines. They don't want to talk about it. They just, like yeah. they, they, yeah. they just want yeah. to, you know, hit, hit the lines and make it to the craft services table. See, it's my job to become the writer. Mm -hmm. My job is to take what you've written and then to own it so that I am now the writer. I'm not talking about changing your words. I'm talking about like alkaline water that I drink mm -hmm. this fluid and it feeds me right. and expands me into a reality that is clearly a combination of what you've written and what my sensibilities are. Then I become the writer. Mm -hmm. And then what comes out of me is true and real and authentic, you know, and unique, as opposed to just becoming a parrot of words that don't have any kind of depth or content. So I start with what you have written, and I take ownership of that mm -hmm. and make it my own. That is what, my, what I do, and that's what I teach. Yeah, that's the that's the vast majority of my experience as a writer because you know writers are not um, generally not involved in productions. You know right. that, that changes when you know like on my own shows where I'm the uh, the showrunner as well. Right. And now I have you know a certain amount of authority, but even then I'm not allowed to. It's it's a it's a protocol breach to if I had an idea for a scene, you know, or that I'm watching a scene uh, being shot or rehearsed, you know, for me to go. To, talk to any of the actors is a, is a complete breach of protocol. You know, one of the first things I do as a, as an actor is go to the director and say, I'm communicating with one person about this character. Is that you? If it's you, then please have no one else come and talk to me because I don't want to offend them. Right. I'm talking to one person. Right. Yeah. That's it. Now, it doesn't have to be the director because on sometimes on shows, the directors are there as guests as well. So right. it might be the showrunner. Yeah. I'm cool with that. But I don't want to hear from two people right. who have two different sensibilities about right. something. Right. I don't want to get in my head about is it this or is that. One communication. So I know we're running a bit, a bit late. I just want to ask you like one last thing. If you had to tell... Ah, tell sounds harsh. If you had to uh, suggest to a writer um, as you're writing for actors because we remember we talked once we wanted to do like a like a, a seminar we should probably still do yeah, this we it's should like probably writing still. for actors acting for writers yes. like half the day is you talking to writers about acting right. and half the day is me talking to actors about writing right so if you if you wanted to sign up now if you wanted to <laughs> if you um like could give some we like like the the most trenchant piece of advice to writers as they're 
working on scenes, knowing that they're going to be handing it off to actors, what would you tell the writer? Um, wow, that's a good question. Um, that is a really good question. What would I tell the writer about writing for actors? Um, Maybe the way into it is we go, when you, when you read a script and like, what are the pitfalls you see that, the, that an uninformed writer has put into a scene, like on and on and on, like you know, sort of like the, you know, the, the classic writing for acting mistake is this. I mean, do, does that pop up? Well, what, what does pop up is um, when, I, when I read something and, um, and I want to turn the page because what I'm reading is, is, is believable, it's authentic. And when I say believable, it doesn't necessarily, I don't mean, you know, some serious drama. It could be a farce. But even in the farce, aspect of it you know um is is the logic clear is it logical you can look at jim carrey and does the logic follow or does it is it trying to be interesting or are the people interested if something is trying to be interesting then it is operating outside of a truth and a logic that I follow? Or is it interested? And I don't care what kind of material. You look at Raiders of the Lost Ark and, and you look at that fantasy and that fantastical kind of thing. Is it logical in terms of what's taking the next step? So I'm looking for a sense of logic. I'm looking for a sense of truth. Uh, and I'm looking for whether the writer is interested or whether a writer writing is trying to be interesting. I don't know if that is helpful to a no, writer. No, it's totally helpful. But that's part of what keeps me wanting to turn the next page. If I can read the script in, I'm not the fastest, I'm not your Evelyn Woods honor student, <laughs> but, but uh, if I can read the script in one sitting, then I know that's going to be good. If I have to put it down and come back to it just because it doesn't maintain the logic or I look at it and say, come on, then, and I have to force myself to keep going, then the actor is going to have the same experience. As a writer, you write the script in this vacuum and then you hand it off to a couple hundred people mm. to go make it. Yeah. And it's like, if it comes out, you know, even cl close or better than your perception it's like oh my god that was amazing it's it's hard i mean i i like i you know i'm i, I don't want to i don't want to come off as cynical i you i'm only, I'm only a, you know this amount cynical i'm not like <laughs> this amount cynical but you know but i i do believe in that it's a collaborative process but it is. yeah but it's it's you know with some writers you know it's very hard to give up the material knowing that you know, I don't know if the miracle is going to happen this time or not. I, I saw something that I want to send you, but I have to find it because I think it might be in my storage. There was a cartoon that uh, in the first little thing, it said, uh, a writer, it said, first draft, and the script was this thick. Second draft, 
and oh no, his the, how he maintained his original writing or whatever he wound up with. First draft this thick, second draft this thick, co-writing this thick, <laughs> network or studio this that, and then at the release it was like one page left right. of his original writing. Yeah. So you know it's kind of the story of of the writer's story. You it know, is the writer's what story. What you wind up with. Right. And yeah. sometimes the magic happens. Sometimes the magic happens. Well, the magic happened today having you come in here. Richard. Thank you, sir. Thank you great. so much. I was looking forward to this. Me too. Me yeah. too. Thanks. Good uh, to see you. Yeah. Uh, and thank you for all you've contributed to my way of teaching and sharing with my students. Oh, thanks. Your wonderful writings, your contour, the how my story could beat up your story. And now the writer's room pro. <laughs> and I'm I I we're we're uh on that website as well. We used Good. it once. Good. Excellent. Yeah. Once? Just once so far. Okay. Uh, your refund will be in the mail. Don't worry. <laughs> anyway, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, sir. Thank you to Richard for joining us. And make sure you tune in next week for our interview with director Todd Holland.